You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, we invite you to go to Luke chapter 11 as we come to a close this morning in our 2020 vision series. And if you have been with us, what we've been saying is that our vision as a church is simply this. It is to see God's kingdom come and his will be done in northeast Arkansas as it is in heaven. So if somebody asks you that, hey, what is the vision of the crossing? I hope that's your response. We exist to see God's kingdom come and will be done in Northeast Arkansas as it is in heaven. And it's important that whenever you think about the kingdom of God, uh, don't think of, of chubby babies sitting around on fluffy clouds plucking harps, um, but rather think of a place where God is ruling and reigning. And therefore, think of a place where everything is as it should be. There's flourishing, uh, there is peace, relationships are restored. Um, think about a place where, where sickness and sorrow and death and disease and all dysfunction has, has completely fled away. It is no more. And so when you think of the kingdom of God, uh, think of paradise. Uh, think of a place that you and I right now, whether you realize it or not, are longing for, which is why uh, Tim and the band just led us in that song. We are desperate for a touch of heaven. We are desperate for the world to be put to right, for everything to be as it should be. And, and the reason this is so important is because what we've been saying is that over the last five, six, seven weeks, as we've been saying, you know, um, as a church, we really believe, and this is not just some sort of like cute mission statement to fire you up, but we really believe and we read the scriptures that God is now calling us as his disciples to partner with him and pulling that future kingdom even more so into this present world so that we can see through our words and our actions, uh, Northeast Arkansas look a little bit less like hell and a little bit more like heaven. And today, as we come to a close in our series, I just want to end by saying this. If you are excited about seeing the kingdom of God, the future kingdom, break even more into this present world, if you are uh, excited you want to, and you feel like you're on board with all the stuff that we have been saying, um, we're actually going to ask you to give of your money, to give of your finances to this vision and mission. And for the record, before some of you like try to sneak out immediately and be like, I'm heading for the door, right? Um, I just want to say uh, this. Um, I know that as soon as I say that word money, that first off, it's always weird when a pastor talks about money. Um, but I know that that's an emotional trigger for some of you. And I just want you to know, like, I personally don't want to talk about money. Um, I know that you don't want me to talk about money. Um, but here is my uh, promise to you. Um, just to kind of ease your mind, I want you to know that after I get in talking today, like I'm not going to pass an offering basket around for a second time. Um, this sermon is not some sort of last-ditch effort to pull our church out of financial trouble. We're not in financial trouble. So um, I, I, my plan today is not to pull a bunch of obscure Old Testament Bible verses out and try to beat you over the head with it to guilt you into giving, though I certainly could do that. Um, that's not my plan today either. But rather, what I want to do this morning is I simply want to do this. I just want to look at Jesus of Nazareth, and I just want to see what he says about money. And to help us do that, um, I think we can put this on the screen for you, but I want us to read this verse together. This is Jesus in Acts 20, 35, talking about money. 
And I want you just, if you will, to read this out loud with me. Jesus says this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The word for blessed there is the Greek word makarios, and it literally means happy. So uh, one translation puts it like this, there is more happiness in giving than receiving. Or in the words of another translation, a life of generosity is better than a life of greed. If I can be honest with you, for years, I totally disagreed with Jesus on this. I would have never said it out loud, but in the interior of my heart, whenever I thought about this, I thought, like, seriously, Jesus, like, it's better to give than receive. Like, I just think you're wrong on this one. But you know, it's interesting um, that now there is all of this new research coming out that shows us, guess what? Shocker. Once again, Jesus knows what he's talking about. And so, for example, sociologists Christian Smith and Hillary Davidson in their book, The Paradox of Generosity, they summarize all their data, concluding that generous people, listen to this, are healthier, happier, live longer, have lower levels of depression and anxiety, are more interested in personal growth, and have better long-term relationships. They go on to say this, and I quote, People rightly say that money cannot buy happiness, but money and happiness are still related in a curious way. Happiness can be the result of not spending more money on oneself, but in giving more money away to others. The data examined shows this is not only a nice idea, but it's also a social scientific fact. They go on to say, when you examine the empirical evidence, as it turns out, the American formula of more money equals more happiness, simple is not true. This is why in the words of Winston Churchill, we make a living by what we get but we make a life by what we give. This is why it should come as no surprise then that Jesus, who guess what, despite what you have been told, actually cares about how happy you're becoming. This is why he actually had a lot to say about money. In fact, Jesus talked about money so much that scholars estimate that 25% of the time Jesus was talking in the Gospels, he was talking about money. Can you just imagine that for a moment? If every fourth Sunday I came up here and I preached on giving, can you imagine that? Like, we would be way smaller than we are, uh, for sure. Um, I would probably be really well paid, but uh, we would be smaller. We would, we would shrink as a church. Like, nobody wants to hear a talk every fourth Sunday on money. And yet, despite the fact that I teach on it maybe once a year, if Jesus was your lead teaching pastor, he would teach on it once a month. And what's fascinating to me is Jesus was not a pastor of a congregation, so Jesus didn't talk on money because he's like, hey, my salary's tied to your giving. Or he didn't talk about money because he's like, hey, we need to raise money for the annual budget. Or we need to make sure the staff is paid or that the utilities are being covered. And yet, despite all this, Jesus, again, 25% of the time he opened his mouth, it was about money. Why do you think that is? Well, it's because Jesus is very interested in your heart. Jesus is very interested in your happiness. He's very interested in you experience the freedom and the fulfillment that you were created for and long to experience. And so to that end, because money is about far more than just being about money, because it's actually about your heart and the quality of life that you and I are going to experience here on planet Earth, I want to look now at Luke chapter 11, at just one of the places where Jesus is teaching on money, in particular about the practice of tithing. So Luke chapter 11, verse 33, I'm going to be reading from the NIV translation, and um, as always, the, the notes for the sermon are on the YouVersion Bible app, so if you want to access those, you certainly can. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 33. 
Jesus says, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bow. Keep in mind, this is the first century. There's no electricity. There's no light bulbs. And so what Jesus is saying here is, you know, in this time period, if you wanted to light up your house, you had to light a lamp. And so he's saying, no one's going to light a lamp and then put it under a bow or hide it somewhere. That'd be pointless, right? And so he said, instead, they would put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. Now, to the modern ear, this verse don't make a lot of sense. If you were reading this, uh, maybe in your own quiet time, you might come to this verse and be like, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? But to a first century Jew, this verse would have made a lot of sense because if you were a first century Jew, you would know what Jesus is doing here is he's using a figure of speech that was very popular. And so, in fact, if you have a NIV Bible like I have, you might notice that after the word healthy, there is a footnote. And then if you go down to the bottom of the page, which you can see here on the screen, you will see that it says the Greek word for healthy here implies what? Generous. And then you also, if you're reading this verse, you will see a footnote after the word unhealthy. You go down to the bottom of the page and it says the Greek word for unhealthy here implies what? Stingy. Yeah, so again, what Jesus is doing here is he's using a figure of speech. And ultimately, listen, what he is saying, you've got to get this today, there are one of two ways that everybody in here is viewing the world. One of two ways. There's not a third option, okay? And so one way that you and I can view the world is through what's called an abundance mentality, which means you believe that everything you have is a gift from a generous God, and therefore, because there is plenty to go around, you live with gratitude towards God and generosity towards others. I think of my daughter, uh, Nora, who's uh, here on the front row. And, and on Friday, we went to Walmart, and um, my son had some allowance money he wanted to spend, and she had a $15 gift card she got for her birthday. And so we went to Walmart. Wyatt got him this little, like, mini uh, Pac-Man arcade game, which is phenomenal, by the way. It's a lot of fun. I recommend it. $27 can be yours. Um, and so he bought that. But my daughter had this $15 gift card um, that, again, she received for her birthday. And rather than spending it on herself... She said that she wanted to get, it was Valentine's Day, she wanted to get her youngest brother, Moses, um, this like dog, stuffed animal doggy thing, and like this like heart with all this chocolate candy in it. And um, it was really beautiful, but in that moment, like it's almost like I was trying to talk her out of it. I'm like, you realize this is the only $15 you got, right? It's like, you know, it's like to me, I'm thinking, like, this doesn't make any sense. But in the moment for her, here's the thing, she realizes as long as she's with her dad, she's going to be covered. Like she's not going to go without, like she's going to have all of her needs met. She doesn't have a scarcity mindset. Like she realizes everything she has is a gift and she wants to give it to others. And later that night, I was talking to her in her bed. And I was like, hey, what was the best part of your day? Was it making the cookies with mom? Was it eating the pizza, which is her favorite? I'm like, what was your favorite thing? You know what she said? It was getting the gift for her youngest brother. Why? Because as Jesus says, it's better to give than it is to receive. Like that's what it means to have an abundance mentality, to have a healthy eye, a healthy worldview. But in contrast, Jesus says there's such thing as having a healthy eye, an unhealthy eye. There's such thing as having not an abundance mentality, but a scarcity mentality. And if you have a scarcity mentality, what that means is you look out over the world and you know what you see? A world of lack. The future is bleak. Life is just one big competition where we're all fighting for these limited resources. And therefore, instead of seeing your resources and life and, and your money as a gift, you look and you think about all the stuff you don't have, but still think you need in order to be happy. 
So you just walk around. You're like, I want that. I want that. I want that. I want what she has. I want what he has. I want that. I need this. I need that. I need that. You know what happens? You end up becoming the kind of person who is absolutely consumed with greed. You have an unhealthy eye, an unhealthy view of God, of life, and money. This is what Jesus is getting at in verse 34. It says, everybody in here, one of two worldviews. One of two worldviews. He goes on in verse 35, and he says the following, See to it then that this light within you is not darkness. That is Jesus for pay attention to how you're spending your money. Pay attention to your bank account because what you do with your money really matters in light of the kind of person you're going to become. Verse 36, Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when the lamp shines its light on you, which is Jesus for, look, if you will get your relationship with money right, if you will become a generous man or a generous woman, if you will take Jesus at his word that, guys, it really is better for you to give than receive, then what Jesus is saying here is everything else will take care of itself. That's his promise to you and to me. And then in light of this, in verse 37, it says, When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So the Pharisee that that Luke is talking about here most likely was a very rich man. And because Jesus was a homeless man who never was turning a free meal down from a rich guy, he's like, okay, let's do it. And so he goes in, he reclines at the table. Verse 38, but the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus had not first washed his hands before his meal. So just be clear here. I know there's some kids listening. This is not a passage about hygiene, okay? And so if you're listening to this, kids, and you're like, oh, Jesus didn't wash his hands before a meal, so I don't have to wash my hands before a meal. Like, yes, you do, especially in germ season or in flu season, right? Like, germs are real. Like, wash your hands before you eat. This is not a passage about hygiene. This is a verse about Jesus saying, I refuse to follow your dead, empty rituals that the Pharisees were enforcing on everybody else. I mean, basically, the Pharisees, what they were saying is they they took some form of the Levitical law from the Old Testament, and they were saying, hey, in order for you to be right with God, you have to go through this really crazy, like, ritual where you clean your hands before every meal. And only if you do that, will you be made right in right standing before God. And what Jesus is realizing here is, listen, the truth is God doesn't really so much care about what's on the outside. He cares about what's on the inside. And so when Jesus is standing at the table, he just dives right in. He just starts eating. Like, I don't even know if he prays. I'm not sure what happens here, but, but he dives right in. He starts eating. And then in verse 39, Jesus picking up on the fact that disciples are disgusted by this. He says this to them, verse 39. Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, and the word for foolish here means you're not even using your brain, you're not thinking. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make also the inside? Um, Just to kind of summarize what Jesus is talking about here is think about this coffee mug. This is my favorite coffee mug. Um, this was passed down to me uh, by my grandfather. So my grandfather passed away a little over 10 years ago. Before he passed away, he was in a nursing home for a couple years. Um, but we were recently cleaning out my grandparents' house, and we came across this mug, which was his. And, and before he went to the nursing home, he'd basically like put a bunch of his shaving supplies in there because he wasn't going to be needing them anymore. And so it had kind of collected um, just like some, some gook, some grime. Like it wasn't super clean. It looked beautiful on the outside, just like this, but the inside was dirty. And therefore, in order for this mug to be useful to me, for me to drink coffee out of it, what did I have to do? I didn't just keep polishing the outside. I had to clean out the inside. And and what Jesus is saying here is, listen, to you Pharisees, and maybe even to some of us in the room today, you look really good on the outside. You really do. You're impressive. Right? Like, like maybe you give. Maybe you serve. Maybe you have all, like, the religious rules down. 
But then Jesus looks at these men and he says, but here's the thing, your interior, your inside, like your heart is wicked. Like it's, it's greedy. He says inside of you, it's rancid and it is gross. And therefore, look at this in verse 41 as a solution to our problem, as a way of helping us clean out the inside. Look at what Jesus says, verse 41. But now as for you, what is inside you? Look at this. Here's the solution. Be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. That's a very bold statement from Jesus. Hey, you want to clean out all of that junk inside of you? He could have said anything he wants, but he says, be generous to the poor. And then you will begin to be clean inside and out. And then in verse 42, and Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees. And when you hear that, don't think of like Jesus with fire in his eyes and spittle on his beard. But this is like Jesus, like he's in grief here. He's saying like, oh, I mean, you guys are missing it again. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth, and that means 10%, of your mint, your rue, and all other garden herbs. And what Jesus is saying here is, listen, you're following the Levitical law, God's commands in the Old Testament, you're still doing that, which is to give 10% of your, um, of your, of your herbs and all these things, right? Because they were in a grand society, this is the same as giving 10% of your income. Jesus says, great job, well done. Like, you're giving 10% of your garden herbs, you're giving 10% of your mint. Like, these guys are even giving 10% of their rue. I don't know if you know it. Anybody got rue? Anybody got any rue? You know what rue is? Rue is a weed in your backyard. So these guys aren't just tithing. Like literally, they are tithing to the extreme. Anything they have, they're giving God 10% of that. And Jesus is like, well done. But here's the problem. Verse 42, you neglect justice and the love of God. In other words, you're missing out on God's heart. You're tithing to the nth degree, but you're neglecting the poor. You're not pursuing justice. You're not being merciful. You're not being compassionate. And therefore, your heart is disconnected from God. But then Jesus says this fascinating line in verse 42, and this is what I want to focus on for our purposes today. Jesus says this. Look at verse 42 again. You should have practiced the latter, meaning you should be radically generous to the poor. But, look at this, without leaving the former undone. In other words, this is not Jesus critiquing tithing and saying, oh, that's old school. That's like, that's Old Testament stuff. What Jesus is actually saying here is you should tithe. You should give 10% of your gross income, but just make sure that when you do it, you don't neglect the poor and the marginalized in the process. And so, with that being said, um, because my job is to teach you what Jesus teaches you, here's what I want to do. I just want to give you real quick about a five to seven minute biblical theology of tithing. Okay, and you can decide for yourself later if this is something you want to put into practice or not. But, but I, my job is just to give you the information. It's your job to see what you want to do with it. But I want to give you just a quick fly over the Old Testament of five to seven minutes. You can time me biblical theology of tithing. And then we'll step back. We'll draw some implications. And then we'll talk practically about what this looks like for you and for me. Okay, And so you don't have to turn there, but to start. In Genesis chapter 1, here's what we believe as Christians. We believe, according to the Bible in Genesis 1, that the world was created by God as an act of generous, creative love. And if you read the story in Genesis for yourself, chapter 1 and 2, you'll see this one verb that keeps showing up over and over, and it's the verb gave. And so you'll see God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave. So God gave plants, God gave animals, God gave food, And then in this great act of generosity, he then does what? He invites humans to be his honored guest. Think about this. To come and to breathe his air. To eat his food. 
to, to, to enjoy the overflow of his hospitality and love. And this is the way things were in Genesis 1 and 2. However, in Genesis 3, what happens? Adam and Eve, deceived by the serpent, they are convinced they can no longer trust this generous and good God. And therefore, in this telling line in Genesis 3, we read this. Eve, seeing that the fruit of the tree was good for the food and pleasing to the eye, so there it is, took from the fruit of the tree God told her not to eat. So think about this. If you're reading this in your own time, Genesis 1 and 2, God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave, Eve took. You see it? She, she took of the fruit God told her not to eat, and as a result, she then gave some to her husband, and as a result, sin entered into the picture. And now, listen, here's what this means for you and me. The Bible is clear because sin has passed through Adam and Eve to all of us in here as humans. Like Adam and Eve now, we are born with this bent where we are tempted to live as childish consumers. We are tempted to believe the lie that, no, it's better to receive than to give, and therefore I will be greedy rather than generous. This is why we see in the very next chapter in the story of God in Genesis chapter 4, there's this famous Sunday school story that we, we always tell people it's all about murder, but really it's a story about two views of God and money. And what happens in this story? Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. God comes to these sons and says, hey, I want you to give me an offering. I want you to bring an offering. And so what does Cain do? Cain says, okay, you got it. And he just goes and gets some leftovers, just some little scraps that he has, and he gives them to God. And what happens to his offering? It's rejected. Abel, on the other hand, says, I'm going to give God the first of my flock. I'm going to give to him off the top. And as a result of the offering, what happens? It is accepted. Cain's rejected. Abel's accepted. Cain then is jealous of Abel, goes on to murder his brother, and then the story goes on. And what I want you to understand when it comes to the story is if you continue to follow that story of Cain and Abel eventually, because this story was passed down for generations, Israel then, this is where they got their theology of first fruits, which is now actually uh, developed into a theology of tithing, where God's people have said historically down throughout time that like Abel, we do not want to give God our leftovers. We actually want to give to God our first fruits. Rather than waiting to the end of the month and seeing what we have left, we want to give off of the top of our income as a, as a way of, of showing gratitude and trust in the God who has given me every single thing that I have. Guys, if you stop and think about it, in our culture, in American culture today, this is completely backwards to how many of us live. I, I, I believe in a room like this, and sure, here, since you woke up and you actually brought your kids and wrestled with them and you're singing songs, I would assume most of you in here would agree, yes, it's good to give to God. The problem is, for many of us, we'll say, I'll give to God after I pay my debts. I'll give to God after I pay off my student loan. I'll give to God after I pay my mortgage, which, to be honest, is actually a little bit more than what we can afford. I'll give to God after I make my car payment, which, once again, is a little bit more than we can afford. I will give to God, but I need to have cable. I need to have Netflix. I need to have Sling, right? I need to have my Shad Racks. Like it's open now. I need to swing through there three or four times a week. And of course, like I do need to get that new pair of shoes. I'd like to have a jack. I need to get my kids all the best of the best. Like, like once I do all that, yes, then with what I have left, I will seek to give that, if there is anything left, to God. And listen, if that is where you are, please hear me today. I am very glad that you are here. But you need to know, not according to Jared, who cares what I have to say, Right? But according to God, your heart is more like Cain's than like Abel's. You have, like Cain, an unhealthy eye. 
You have a scarcity mentality. And today, listen, for some of you, God is calling you into something much deeper and richer than you can ever imagine. He's calling you to trust him. He's calling you to live not with a heart of scarcity, but with a heart of abundance, to live with an awareness that all of life is an undeserved gift from God and that the reason you have been blessed with what you have been blessed with is not to sit on it for yourself, but to be a blessing to the world. This is why, if you keep reading in the story of God, eventually God comes to Genesis or comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he says to Abraham, I'm going to use you to start a new family, and I'm going to bless your family. Why? So that you can be a blessing to the nations. Another translation of this is God is saying to Abraham, I will be generous to you so that you can in turn be generous with others. And in response to this, what does Abraham do in Genesis 14? He actually gives God 10% of what he owns. He tithes. And what's fascinating about that to me is this was way before God ever commanded anybody to tithe. I mean, the tithe wasn't commanded until hundreds of years later, but Abraham does it. Why? Because it's just his heart impulse. He says, I have been blessed to be a blessing. I want to be like my God, and therefore I'm going to give away 10% of what I have. Now, if you keep reading, eventually Israel would be commanded to give 10% of all they have. And and by the way, um, some people I've talked to, they're like, man, I think we should give just like they did in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, God's people were commanded to give 10%. So I'm going to do what the Old Testament says. Well, if you really want to do what the Old Testament says, don't just stop there. Because Israel was also commanded to give a grain offering, a drink offering, a fellowship offering. There were so many other offerings they had to give that scholars tell us that if you were a Jewish man or woman, you would in total give God 23.24% of your annual income. As just a way of saying, I trust you, you're better than anything else I have. Here you go. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. Over and over, God, because he is a generous God... And because he created us in his image, says, I want you to reflect my generosity to the world. I want you to be a generous people. However, to make a very long story short, Israel, as you know, does not become the kind of people God has in mind. They refuse to trust God. They refuse to live lives of gratitude and worship towards him. And as a result, Israel's eventually taken into exile. They lose basically everything. Their lives fall apart. And when you come to the end of the Old Testament, which if you've ever read it, is pretty depressing. I think we can all agree. You come to the end of the Old Testament and you should be asking yourself, like, what is God going to do about this? Like, how is he going to clean up this mess? Like, how is he going to respond to these people who refuse to trust him despite the fact he's provided for them and their family in miraculous ways? And so what does God do? And when you get to the New Testament, because God we see is rich in mercy, he responds to Israel's greed the same way he responds to your greed and to my greed. He responds to our greed with the greatest act of generosity the world has ever seen. In John 3, 16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. He gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I know that that is a very cliche Bible verse. Right? We put it on our faces before football games. We have it on t-shirts and everything else. But listen, please do not let this verse be lost on you. Because what this tells us is despite the fact that we have all robbed God and rebelled against God rather than him giving us the hell we deserve and said, I'm just going to make you pay me back for eternity because God is love. And listen, love is generous. To be love is to be generous. What does God do? God gives us his son. So that rather than living as his enemies, we can live now as his sons and daughters in his home under his roof where the Bible says there is plenty for everyone. Guys, this is the gospel. And listen, it is only whenever this truth goes from in your head to in your heart can you become a generous person. 
I don't feel like I have to get up here and scream at anybody today to give more, you know, be more generous. Because I know that when the gospel of Jesus Christ truly moves into your heart, it's then you go from being stingy and living with a scarcity mindset to living a life of generosity from a place of abundance, which again, according to Jesus, is the best and most beautiful way that you can live. I was talking with someone this past week. It's kind of interesting. I've been in ministry now for 16 years, and to the best I can remember, I've never done crisis counseling with someone who gives faithfully to the church. 16 years. I, I've done like maintenance. Okay, there's a difference between crisis counseling and like maintenance counseling, tune-up. We all need tune-ups, right? We all need times where like our marriage, we need to go check in and be like, hey, I just want to like have another set of eyes on this. But I've never had anybody walk into my office where literally their lives are falling apart because of decisions they made. Their marriage is like, I mean, it's just, Matt, it's on the wrong. Never had that with a couple who gives faithfully to the church. And I really believe that is because a couple that is tithing is a couple that is generous. And a couple that is generous is a couple that has learned how to love and trust in a way that is deeper than what those who don't give are able to. And love and trust, by the way, like it's the two things you have to have in order to cultivate a healthy relationship with God, with your spouse, with others, and even with yourself. This is why Billy Graham says the following. He says, if a person gets his attitude towards money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area of his life. Think about that. If a person gets his attitude towards money straight, it'll straighten out almost every other area in their life. Their marriage, parenting, work, relationships, emotions. How can he say that? Because again, listen guys, please hear this. Money is about way more than money. Money is about way more than money. It is about your heart. And according to the book of Proverbs, your heart, listen to this, is the control panel for all of your life. Which means your heart impacts your marriage, your parenting, your work, and everything in between. And therefore, because that is true, because how you handle your money has a direct effect on the kind of person you do or do not become, Here's what I want to do as a way of, of moving our hearts away from anxiety and greed and discontentment and towards gratitude and generosity and trust as a way of opening up our hearts to experience more of what it means to be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do what he did so that we can see our vision become a reality of seeing God's kingdom come and will be done in any as it is in heaven. What I want to do is I want to encourage each of you to just try on the practice of tithing. Just try it on. Because I think this practice, possibly more than any other practice, opens up our hearts to experience more freedom and more fulfillment, I want to encourage each of you, if you're a disciple of Jesus, to give tithing a try. And when we talk about tithing, just to be super practical, what we're talking about is the practice of giving 10% of your gross income to the local church, whether it's this church or whatever church you're a member of. Um, To say, before I give to some other ministry, or to some other missionary, like I am going to because the local church is the place where me and my family, where we are fed, where we are protected, where we are equipped, where we are held accountable, because this is the church that I'm partnering with in mission, because this is where I'm learning to live out my identity as family, I'm going to choose to give a tithe, which means, again, to give 10% of the income to a local church. This guys, again, listen, if you're a disciple, you're going to have to wrestle with this. This is the practice that you see all through the Old Testament where the people of Israel would give to the priest and the temple. You see Jesus himself just endorsed it in Luke 11, and it's a practice that has continued down throughout church history, no matter what country or nation it's a part of. We just had uh, um, 
a man who's a part of a, a he was an Ethiopian who was here today. He's a Muslim, but I think actually he's starting to follow Jesus, a guy that our missional community is reaching out to. And he came up to me after the service and he says, your teaching is universal. Uh, it's universal. It translates to every custom. Like, you're going to have to wrestle with that. Like, this is what Jesus' teaching is, no matter who you are or where you come from. And, you know, and for me, fortunately, here's the deal. Like, I grew up in a home where I got to watch my parents do this, even when they felt like they had nothing to give. So I had a great example set for me. I remember my parents would give to the church even whenever we didn't even know how we were going to pay the bills. Uh, my parents go back and they tell me now, like even times where like there was medicine that they needed to get for us. They're like, I don't even know how we're going to get the $30 to afford that. And yet God miraculously would provide all through their life. And he has continued to do that. Um, I remember growing up in Sunday school. How many of you remember the envelopes, the giving envelopes? Did any of you get those growing up? Okay, several of you. Like you would go in and be like, did you bring your Bible? Did you invite a friend? Did you pray? And then how much money do you want to give? And you'd put it in the offering bag, in a little envelope and you'd seal it up and you'd put it in. Like that was just like modeled for me, like early on. And so in many ways, like I don't say this to brag, but tithing for me in many ways is like muscle memory. Like I personally give, my wife and I give 10% of our gross income to the church. We have even, when we got married, we had $80, $80 in our checking account. And we just said, okay, this is like a practice that we want to try to implement into our lives. We teach our kids to do it. Our kids give 10% off of their allowance that they get. And so in many ways, like for me, tithing is like second nature. But that being said, listen, I know for some of you, this is not the case. For some of you, like you didn't grow up in the church. Or maybe you grew up in the church and your parents didn't tithe. Or maybe, you know, they did tithe and they never talked to you about it. And so for you, like you, me talking about giving 10%, like that seems like just a foreign concept to you. It seems absolutely impossible. You're sitting here right now and you're thinking, there's no way I can give 10%. Here's what I would just say to you. If you can't give 10% of your gross income to the Lord, try to start somewhere. Just start somewhere. Try to be faithful. Try to be regular and giving somewhere. If you can't start at 10%, start at 6% or 5% or whatever it is that you are able to do. But listen, before you just say, I cannot give 10%, please do this. Please at least take an honest look at your expenditures. Please actually be honest about whether or not you are actually cutting out non-essentials that could be cut out so that you can give what God has called you to give. I've personally spoken with, with people who have told me, Jerry, there's no way we can give 10%, and yet they all have smartphones and gym memberships they don't even use and $60 cable packages. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. They have all these things they have in their life that they, they absolutely could live without but refuse to cut out because they believe in a different vision than the vision of Jesus of Nazareth. And today, if that is where you are, listen, I'm not trying to beat you up, but I just want to say this. Before you say, I can only give 2%, please, guys, for your own soul, search your heart. Pause long enough. Look at your budget and just make sure that you are giving to God your first fruits rather than your leftovers. For some of you in here, maybe uh, 2% or 1%, it really is the best you can do. And please look at me and hear me. If so, you should have no shame or guilt over that whatsoever. None. In fact, I would say this. There might be some of you in here, all you can give is 1% or 2%, and God is probably more pleased with your heart than some of us that give 10%. Because it's much greater sacrifice for you than it is for us. I, I've had to wrestle with this this week. You may not know this, but before I preach a message to you, I have to preach it to myself all week long. And I preach it to my wife on Saturday night. She's very gracious to listen. So we've wrestled with this. 
And, and listen, there are some of us in here, maybe you're like me, 10% just doesn't mean to you what it used to. It's really not that big of a sacrifice in the grand scheme of things. And so maybe for you, like me, like for your own growth and your own spiritual formation, so you can experience more intimacy with God and, and freedom and fulfillment and all these things, maybe for you, you need to be asking the question of God, should I be given more than 10%? Rather than saying, why are all these people not given 10%? Like, start, should I be given more than 10%? Rather than building bigger barns or going on better vacations or raising my standard of living to another higher place, should I be giving away more than I am? Should I try to move from maybe 10% to 10.1% or 10.5% or 11 or 12? I don't know what it may be for you. Um, Rick Warren, who I know like he has mixed reviews. Some people love Rick Warren. Some people hate Rick Warren. He's a guy, he's a pastor at uh, Saddleback in California. He wrote the Purpose Driven Life book, which, has, which is, uh, from what I remember, it's the, it's the second highest selling book or most sold book of all time next to the Bible. And it's the most translated book of all time next to the Bible. And Rick Warren, in an interview I was listening to um, several weeks ago, he was talking to a bunch of business leaders at some sort of like Faith and Work Expo. He said, you know, uh, someone asked him like why he thinks that God asked him to write Purpose Driven Life. And he said, I think the reason God asked me to do that because he knew what I would do with the money. He said, you see, my wife and I, when we got married and we had nothing, we made a decision that every year we're going to become more generous. We're going to start with giving 10% away, then go to 10.1, 10 10.2, and he said that was before we had anything. That was times where honestly we'd look in the cabinets and be like, I don't know what we're going to eat this month. And he says, so I think God chose me to write that book because he knew that when I got the money, he knew what I would do with it. And you know what he did with it? Rick Warren now, not only does he give 10% and then keep 90%, he actually gives away to the church and to missions 90% of his income, and he lives off of 10%. And so him and his wife, worth way more money than any of us probably are combined, they still live in the same house they've lived in the last 30 years. He drives an old pickup truck, he's got a $10 watch. And, and listen, I'm not saying that's for everybody. I'm not beating up on you if you have a nice house or a, an eye watch or whatever. But I think we can all admit like, there's something really beautiful about that. Like, I'm not there personally, but I want to be really big. You're talking about freedom. Like, money ain't going to control me. Right? Like, I, I don't need that. And some of you, like, I know maybe you hear that and you're like, yeah, well, if I made millions of dollars like him, I'd do the same thing. And according to statistics, actually, Nothing can be further from the truth. The opposite actually is true. Um, this is from Barner Research. Listen to this. Only 8% of Christians making 20000 a year give 10% to the church. Look at next. But only 5% of those making twenty to 29000 give 10%. Only 4% of those making forty to 45000 give 10%. And only 2% of people who make sixty to 75000 a year give 10% to the church. Truth is, the more you make, the less you want to give. And you're like, well, why, how is that true? Why is that possible? Because at the end of the day, please hear me, your generosity has nothing to do with what's in your wallet and everything to do with what's in your heart. And if at the end of the day, the gospel has not gripped your heart, if you're greedy, money's just going to make you more of what you already are. If the gospel has not gripped your heart, guys, listen, I get it and I even feel it whenever I'm, I'm looking at some of you. Like, what I'm saying is insane, like, it may be, you might even be feeling some anger towards me this morning as I'm talking about this. Like, it will, it will anger you. Some of you, I know, like, maybe I've been talking and you're like, Jared, like, do you have any idea how much I love Shadrachs? Right? Like, I can't cut out Shadrachs. Or do you have any idea, like, how long I have worked to get a truck like that or a house like that or to be a member of a club like that? Like, I get it. What I'm saying today only makes sense if you trust Jesus' vision of the good life. 
giving your money away, like what I'm saying to do, it only makes sense if you make living in and for the kingdom of God your number one pursuit. It's the only way this makes sense. If you don't believe that all of life was an undeserved gift from a generous father and that he's in control and therefore you don't have to be, right? If you don't want to make being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and doing what he did, the number one goal in your life, then I get it. Everything I'm saying today is crazy talk. It's crazy talk. But on the flip side, if you really do buy into what Jesus and the writers of the Bible are saying, and not even research is saying, if you believe a generous life is better than a stingy one, if you believe God knows better how to run your life than you do, that he can actually do more with your 90% than you can do with your 100%, if you believe that, then Jesus' teaching on money makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. To end, here's what I want to do. And you don't have to turn there, but let me just read to you from the prophet Malachi very quickly and we'll be done. I'll just read this over you. This is Malachi chapter 3. And I actually want to share this with you as a word of encouragement, not to beat you up. Malachi chapter 3. God is talking here to the people of Israel. Once again, they're being stingy. They refuse to follow his commands to give. They refuse to believe it's better to give than receive. And so God comes to them, and here's what he says. Malachi chapter 3, started in verse 7. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, God, how are we robbing you? You're robbing me in your tithes and your offerings. And so, therefore, you're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Listen to this. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough for you to store it. Now, I know there are many mistranslations of this where you'll have guys on like TBN or something that'll be like, hey, you give $10, send it in, you know, grandma, and you'll get a thousand back or whatever else. Like, I'm not going to go there, right? I think that's a misreading of this. There's a lot we could say here, but here's just what I want you to focus on and we're going to end. God says to you today, test me in this. Everything that I just said, test me in this. You realize this is the only place in scripture God says, test me? God says to you and to me today, test me in my vision of generosity. Try it out, see what happens. Try generosity, try tithing. Guys, try it for 2020 and just see what happens to your heart. See what happens to your relationship with God. See what happens to your relationship with your family. See if, try this out and see, just see if you feel more deprived. See if you get less happy. See if you get behind in your bills and become even more anxious or more angry or try it and see if God is actually telling the truth on this. And as a result, you begin to feel more content and more joyful and more free and more fulfilled than ever before. That's the call from God to you and me today. And I just want to say this as we end, and I'm almost done. I cannot stand up here and say that I figured all this out. I really can't. Um, I mean, I woke up this morning in a nice home. I have pretty nice clothes, right? You may not think so. I mean, it's Old Navy, but it's pretty nice, right? Um, I eat good food. Um, And so this week, I really had to wrestle with this. Like, is God calling me to do more? Like, does Jared Pickney really have a generous heart? 
Am I really becoming more and more like Christ? Am I becoming more and more of a generous man? Do I trust God more than ever before? If I can be honest, there's times in my own life where I tend to look more like Cain than I do like Abel. There's times where I live with a scarcity mindset that impacts my marriage and my relationships and how I work. And so because of that, if you're anything like me, and if you can be honest, this is why every single week we need a tangible reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why we come and we partake of communion. Because when we partake of communion, we remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 9 that says this, that Jesus, though he was rich, for your sake and my sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty we may become rich. Jesus had it all, and yet he gave it all up. Talk about generosity. He gave it all up for you and me so that now we can know, no matter what's happened in our life, that we will always have secure everything we need in him. We are rich. You are rich. And you are forgiven if you're in Christ. And it's from that place we get to come, we tear off a piece of bread and we dip it in the juice. And when we do that, we remember, I don't have to leave after a message like this in guilt and shame. I don't have to leave here kicking myself out the door, you know, like kicking my own tail over this. What I do, though, is I do come and I'll be honest about the fact that, man, God, like, maybe I do have a greedy heart. Maybe I am stingy. Maybe I do look good on the outside, but, but on the inside, I'm rancid and I'm gross. And then look, here's what we do is we bring it before Christ and we allow him to speak the truth of forgiveness over us again. We feel his love. We feel his mercy. We feel his grace. And listen, it's from that place we go out here and we give. We give not to earn God's love. We give because we already have received his love. Does that make sense? And so every single week, that's why we come and we do this. And so with that being said, here's the thing. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand as the band comes forward. And before you start shuffling around, keep in mind, guys, there's visitors here, as always, every week. And and so let me be clear on these instructions so that they don't feel left out in this moment. I I want you to know if you're a guest here, um, you're welcome to these tables. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we have two stations in the front, two in the back, a gluten-free option for you, my back left, your back right, if that interests you. And if you're a follower of Christ, here's what we do, okay? I know this is a little unique compared to what maybe you've seen in other churches. But what you can do is, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, you can file out. And like I said, we have two stations in front and the back. Tear off a piece of bread, which represents the body of Christ broken for you. And then dip it in the juice, which represents Christ's blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And then if you want, you can uh, return back to your seat. We'll sing one more song, and then we'll be dismissed. That being said, let me pray for us, and then we'll partake. Father, I thank you so much that you are a generous God. I thank you so much for your patience with me. I can be so self-righteous. I can be so quick to look down on others. Um, I can at times be stingy. God, I just confess before my brothers and sisters and before you that I tend to care an awful lot about what people think about me and how I look. And I know that I will not impress them with my poverty but with riches. And therefore, I probably care a little bit too much about how much is in my bank account and how much I keep back for myself and use. And so, Lord, I just ask God, like, I want you to free me up to help me experience more of your grace, more of your mercy, more of your love. I want to learn more of what it means that it's better to give than receive. I pray for each person here today that, God, you would speak to us individually and that we would walk out in obedience. I pray that if there's someone here the gospel has not truly settled into their hearts, that that will do so at this time and that that will free us up to experience more of your love and grace and to extend back to you gratitude to you and generosity to others. And it's in Christ that I pray to ask you things.